Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Poetic Resurrection. And today I'm very excited to talk to Rocco Jarman. Welcome, Rocco. Thank you so much for inviting me on Poetic Resurrections. I'm excited to talk to you. You're a poet and a philosopher, and you were going to read some poems for us. Give, give us a little bit of your background first. Yeah, sure. Well, I came to poetry by way of grief, <laughs> which I think is the best way to come to it. I wouldn't say a boring, but a pretty mundane corporate career for 25 years. I actually think, even though I learned some valuable intellectual lessons, I actually think it hurt my soul a lot, that kind of need to conform and to try and hold a boundary for yourself in that environment. And I think the pressure cooker of that, the crucible of that, actually made me have a more intimate relationship with um, the kind of discomforts that visit all human beings, actually. And it was the living in two worlds and trying to be contiguous and authentic in both the worlds that actually forced me to want to find some form of language or expression where I could um, touch what mattered most to me in this world. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I've immigrated. I've lived abroad in Europe as a young man for a couple of years. I've suffered my, my share of heartbreaks, rejections, failures, etc. Immigrated to Australia with a young family struggled to to keep that on on its wheels for a number of years but um eventually life i think comes along and uh helps us make our choices for us i'm 48 living in western australia happily remarried we've got a, a little two-year-old uh, she'll be two in august and she's the Sweet. light of our life and uh, that's pretty much me in a nutshell now were you born and raised in south africa yeah that's right that's right and you migrated to australia 10 years ago? Well, yeah. So that was about in 2008. And um, if anyone knows anything about what the climate there is like socially, it's it's politically and administratively quite dysfunctional. There's a lot of, a lot of corruption and incompetence. And what used to be an absolutely amazing place, it's just become a day-to-day -day struggle for most people. So I think I read The Room early on. And I didn't want to have to deal, especially with the what was probably more prevalent then was the level of violence that you could encounter out in the street, or, you know, there was a lot of crime. And there wasn't a lot of effective policing services. And the nature of the crime was very angry, and very violent. And I realized that I couldn't keep myself or my family safe in that context. So we moved to, to Western Australia. Yeah, that's a big leap. Why Australia? Yeah. Um, um, well, b because it's also another Anglophile nation. It's very culturally similar. And it's one of the options, the very few options, actually, South Africans had in this diaspora that they've had recently where they could actually be uh, integrated more easily because of the language, because of the culture. And because it's, it's, I mean, South Africa, Australia is far from everything, but it was still doable and it's the way was made open by other folks from the diaspora coming here first, sort of making a way. And in South Africa, your immigration options are actually limited. 
because your passport's not very strong and the the perception is that people are coming to skive off the system or coming to um, not work or so yeah the options yeah. were few we chose that yeah well there's a lot of countries that you actually have to show you have money before you go in there if you want to stay a yeah, certain amount exactly of time right. yeah you have to show you have money now yeah. i i listened to a beautiful poem that you uh have online and i'll put a link for everybody that wants to hear it it's called not tomorrow but you're going to read us another one and which yeah one? i can i can i can read anything anything no i'd like, love to I, hear I this think... new one you were telling me about off camera all right well it's it's actually um it's not new but it is a special piece, um, and I think it's a universal piece. And a lot of my work is it's functional poetry. It's supposed to have a utility. A lot of it I actually create for people to use in a kind of personal private ceremony. And the intentions for these ceremonies are to help give us these touchstones, these pole stars, these these guide rails the work that we're doing inside of ourselves around healing, around trauma. Around, and so much of that is around the wounds we receive in childhood, obviously. Yeah. A place of utmost vulnerability. And this project that becomes so necessary of reparenting oneself and processing generational trauma. I would love you to read it. Yes. Dive into that. The piece is called They Might Have Told Us, and it comes from this realization that dawns in us the more truly adult we become. And when I mean adult, when I say adult, I mean, of course, not someone of of legal drinking age or someone who can drive a vehicle. It's it's this realization that most of our adult life actually is a second adolescence that we have to grow up out of as well. And then we start looking for the, the obvious question, why is this happening to me? Whose fault is this? How, how is it that I've I've arrived here feeling this way. And then you realize there's always someone that came before you that muddled the, that muddied the waters. And it's, these could be our teachers, that could be our authority figures, it could be our politicians and leaders. Um, even life in corporate, uh, you know, breaks your heart in many ways because you're looking out for great people and for leaders. And so often you encounter the, the precise yes. opposite. And all of the, yeah, exactly. And all of these people as a young person that are supposed to be unimpeachable, be um, voices of reason, authority, fairness, they, and we expect these containers not to harm us, not to break our hearts, not to take our promises, but they are in, in fact the vehicles through which we receive exactly yeah. that. And, and, you know, the, the final sort of hurdle of this growing up really is a self-ownership component where you suddenly realize no one else is coming. You know, it's it's actually on me. What I make of this now is is on me. I can blame my parents or their parents, but I also realize in that kind of pragmatism and prudence that we're all someone else's yeah. they. Our parents are the way they are because of their parents who are the, who were the way they were. And if you follow that chain of reasoning, it's all the way back, all the way back until the first time, you know, somebody hit somebody else over the head with a stick. There's there's this cause of there's this chain of cause and effect going all the way back. So this poem is called "They Might Have Told Us." 
but the realization we come to when we've got all this mess that we have to resolve in our lives and we think, you know, somebody really should have told us yeah. this was going to be the way. They might have told us. They might have told us when we were young, self-ownership is a kind of leadership where you do not expect of yourself to master the world around you, but rather it is an allowing of mistakes. They might have said not to get so hung up on the successes or failures of a moment. Not to get so hung up on the successes or failures of a moment. They should have said, they should have said, to allow yourself to try and not expect, not expect to get it right the first time. Allow yourself even perhaps to give up on things that are no longer meant for you or were never truly yours to begin with. They might have let us know that the path to wholeness involves asking no one but yourself for permission and wearing all regrets, wearing all regrets like a meadow wears the morning mist. Wearing all regrets like a meadow wears the morning mist and afterwards the dew. They really should have told us. They really should have told us. But they did not know themselves. They really should have told us, but they did not know themselves because no one told them. And now no one else is coming. Beautiful. I like that because it's true. You keep saying, why didn't anybody tell me about this? It's like two things for me. I wish someone would have told me because I would I have made the same mistakes? Maybe because, you know, a different facet. I think if you're going to learn something, you're going to learn it anyway. But there are basic things that people mm. have experienced that they can't share. The thing is, there are some things we struggle to learn on our own, though. And especially if our framing, um, you know, religion gives us a lot of gifts, but it also gave us a lot of um, psychological ropes mm -hmm. and chains. And what comes out of a childhood of struggle or dysfunction or not fitting in in some way is always guilt yeah. and shame. And this is the thing that gets in the way of us accepting ourselves, us loving ourselves and us finding ourselves someone worthy of leading or choosing the best for. You know, I believe that if you if you direct a child towards self-love, you never have to worry about their choices or their yeah. friends. But we choose partners that allow us to play out the psychological pantomimes of our of our childhoods. We allow people to decide for us where our boundaries ought to be. These are the things that you have to, you can only realize once you break the spell of where you get your permission from. And you get taught actually to respect tradition and respect norms and respect um, virtues and politeness in some ways. And how much unkindness do we visit on each other under the rubric of politeness or I don't want to be rude or I don't want to be selfish, or I don't want to. And in fact, the invitation in all of our grief and our frustrations is in fact to wake up to this absolutely prudent and urgent need to start becoming very selfish in the interests of self-love, not in the interests of fear. I find that at the same time, they didn't tell us, but those are our lessons to learn as well. Very much, very much. I grew up in a difficult area, and it was challenging in terms of poverty and all of that. But my parents warned us about a bunch of things. Did we do it anyway? Yeah, mm -hmm. some of them we did. 
because yes, we needed to exactly. find our independence. And but it wasn't yeah. I find that it wasn't explained in a way that made sense to me. It was more like don't do. Yes. In fact, it wasn't explained at all. No, it was just don't do this and don't do that. And you're like, okay, yes. why? Because I said so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> or do as I say and not as I do. Yeah. That's exactly right. You know, of, co of course we have to make our own mistakes. And of course we do. I think the key to that is realizing that you were here to make your own mistakes, mm -hmm. that you're not expected to get it right. You're not expected to win at everything. Our inherited paradigm for what success looks like or what good looks like or what an apology ought to sound like or that we should accept an apology from someone we don't feel has made us whole. All of that strips away this fundamental necessity of understanding that it's, it's you increasingly as you become older and older and arrive in your own agency. It's you. And that's the bit I think that it would have been so wonderful had we known sooner. And what I'm actually writing this piece about is that just because that's how we arrived here doesn't mean when we get to engage with younger people that we can't start teaching them, or in any leadership capacity, actually, start teaching them this way of self-permission commensurate with self-ownership. Because you can't just do the self-permission bit like a petulant teenager. You can't just be demanding half of the adult equation. You then also have to be accountable for yourself. And what might happen, what might happen if we can steward a generation of young people that do take this as a healthy norm, a healthy premise, a healthy starting point. What launch pad, actually, mm -hmm. might we create for young people and for the human species if they can start off in their life as green and raw and ignorant as we come, all of us, mm -hmm. but with less of the generational trauma, number one, and number two, with the sense that this will eventually be on you and it's, it behooves you to treat your life as something for which you're going to be culpable and for which you're going to be held responsible to yourself mm -hmm. in the avoidance of regret. I honestly think that's, that's a, a magic that runs two ways. You know, it helps us forgive our ancestral lineage that got us here, however messy that that journey may have looked. But it also invites us into the the possibility of stepping up, actually, and and doing our part in this rambling, mm -hmm. you know, like a relay race. And, and I've experienced things that come to me, and it's like, okay, I'm supposed to learn. What am I supposed to learn from this? How do I react? And sometimes you just don't know how to react. No. It's like you want to be no. pissed off, but they didn't do anything to really hurt you to be pissed off. So the really no. The, the anger is within ourselves for not being true to ourselves, I find. Yeah, and also just not knowing how to belong to a moment. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, even sometimes when we arrive in the world as adults, we haven't arrived fully in our bodies, not not yet. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's still a gap between the way we show up and the way our nervous system knows how to show up in the same moment. And <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. And sometimes your body doesn't want to listen to your mind when you know what you're supposed no. to do and say, but but your body exactly. language gives you all away. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then we then, they, you know, it becomes a, a, a cycle, then we, we resort to the guilt and the shame again. So 
And that is such a, a bit away. bad thing for the soul. I had to say things in good and bad. It's just not healthy for the soul. When you mention being accountable, like it's okay to be authentic, but you also have to be accountable for what you do. I have met people that tell everybody they're insecure, but I find that sometimes they're, they are truly insecure, but they use it as an excuse to be able to do one part and not be accountable. Yeah, exactly. There's a selective line about what you should own about yourself, and there needs to be a discernment about what you... See, this is the paradox, right? is we don't actually engineer ourselves. We don't actually decide what's in our hearts. We don't actually, we just arrive here in this moment kind of, and you're wired for a certain thing. You want what you want romantically and sexually. We want what we want. We like the kind of foods we want. We like the kind of music we want. We can be induced into other tastes, but when it comes right down to it, our preferences for how we like to be touched, for how we like to be held in space, for how we like to be loved, tolerated, the freedoms we enjoy. We don't, decide those. We just inherit them from an experience that we inherited from our ancestors or our parents or our, we have no idea how this all came together and fused into this firsthand experience we're busy living through at the moment. And the wisdom and the discernment to tell the difference between what you chose and what you can choose and what you just have to accept about yourself there's another invitation to a huge amount of grace and, and wisdom and self-permission again to actually, this is what I can let go. I can let go of the fact that I feel insecure and selfish, but I can't let go of the fact that in order to sustain relationships and be valued in those relationships, I have to still show up, even if the way that I show up is vulnerably. Vulnerability isn't a self-accountability, actually. It is self-accountability. Because when you get prodded from the outside and it hurts, mm -hmm. your math changes and you don't say, you hurt me. You say, you, run, you ran up against one of my existing sensitivities. And somebody might actually say, oh, I didn't realize. How can I, how can I be more gentle in the future? Oh, it would probably help if you managed my expectations beforehand. Not, now that is a, is a conversation anyone would be willing to have. But our climate at the moment is, um, unfortunately, we're teaching young people that all you have to do is feel wounded. This now becomes enough for you to create a worldview, and it becomes an entrepreneurship, actually, or victimhood, which isn't empowering. It doesn't lead us or them to a place of self-resolution, self-ownership, self-strength, self-leadership. So it's quite sad, actually. Yeah. It is, because I was talking with a friend of mine. And we were talking about how you're not taught to really, I mean, unless you take leadership or anything like that, to address an issue. People will ghost no. you or you go to a third party to take care of the problem for you. Yes. How is that going to help you in real life when you get out? It's right. not, you know, yeah. and our school systems need to change too. Oh, well. And there's, a whole paradigm of how we engage with each other needs to change. Actually. Yeah. And simply by the fact that it's not working. I don't even know what it would change to. No, but that's another beautiful thing that I throw in at this perennially. I just say, if you can just sit and with these two premises and just hold on to them, the one is, as soon as I know better, I'll do better. Mm -hmm. That's an inoculation against guilt and shame because 
I'll, I'll get better as quickly as I can. That's my commitment to myself. And the second thing is I'm going to stop at all these moments of impasse and ask myself, is my help helping? And what does love look like right now? What does love look like right now? What would love look like in this moment? And at the end of the day, sometimes even that question to oneself doesn't yield an easy answer, but at least you know, <laughs> at least you have the comfort of knowing when something does go wrong or fall apart. You go, well, I mean, what was I supposed to do? I said I would um, improve as soon as I knew better. I clearly didn't know better. I asked myself, what does love look like right now? And I made a choice. Now I have to forgive myself because what was I supposed to do but make a mistake and learn from it? This is how I arrived at better. And so sometimes all we can do is ask ourselves, what might better look like? Now, there's no right ways. And there's no only ways. And our arguments in our social public and in political rhetoric and in religion is in constantly trying to convince other people that we have the monopoly on what's right, the, the right way or the only way to do something. Yes. And in fact, but there have to be better and worse ways. It's, it's almost a paradox. There can't be right and only ways, but yet there have to be better and worse ways. And all we have to do is begin with the premise that perhaps what we're doing right now is not the best way. Just, okay. just that premise. Yeah. Without trying to claim that we actually know that this is perennially superior or the only way. It's just a step in the right direction. And this is not a, a straight line that we're moving towards right or moving towards wrong. It's a Cartesian plane. It's multiple directions of movement and, and, um, and orientation. And we're all trying to figure out so much that's overlapping on so much else. All at the same time, whilst we're trying to figure ourselves out and trying to belong to, let's call it the great secret, we're all trying to figure this out. But if we just changed our heuristic of movement to say, well, there can't be right or only ways, but there have to be better and worse ways. And if I bring my subjective art to the piece, I can become a discerning actor in this mm -hmm. whole drama. And I can start at least trying to steer this little corner that I'm sat in in a healthier direction or a healthy place to the measure of our own individual callings. Yes, I used to think that the more I worked on myself, I would eventually learn, but then I realized it's forever. It's forever. And the mind really gets stale if you don't learn. Hmm. And your soul gets stale as well, actually. Oh my God, yeah, is you feel like, what's the use? When, you, I, yeah. when you're not learning and you're not part of something, even if it's you know writing a book or doing whatever it is by yourself, mm -hmm. if you're not part mm -hmm. of something, it just feels like I'm just living. Yeah. You know, I'm just going day to day. I'm not really, yeah. I'm existing. I'm not living. That's what I meant. To That's say. exactly right. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. And so going back to poetry, it is uh, such a great way to question yourself. Poetry, you like or you don't. We all know that going in. And I think that gives us the liberty to be able to express exactly who we are. I know yeah. starting out, you might not like it. I'm still going to do it. Yes. It almost it gives you that permission to be different. It gives you that permission to be. And I mean, I've learned so much about myself through poetry. 
and I didn't even I read it again. I'm like, wow, I didn't, I never knew I really felt that way. But when you see it on yes. paper, it comes back to you, and you're like, yes, yeah, that's me. You 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 overhear yourself saying something you didn't know you felt. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's what the it's so beautiful about it. Now you also do leadership. Yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. So um, tell us a little bit about well, that. Sure. So it's again come from this firsthand experience of my own life in in realizing that the adults that I looked to for leadership didn't have any, um, and then the corporate um, structures that you have to work in the frameworks of the source of most of your frustrations of your mental poor health. You know, we, what do we want? We want things to be fair, and we want we want to feel safe mm -hmm. at a very fundamental psychological level, and when you start experiencing what you feel is actually unfair, you get taken from in a way that you don't get made whole. You get made promises that don't get fulfilled. You don't get the your expectations managed. And then when the traumatic moment or the surprise or the negative thing for the team eventuates, the leader you're expecting to help steer the moment and recover it with leadership and responsibility and grace and, and magnanimity, and they don't you suddenly feel like there's something terrible missing in the world. Because of being a poet at heart, poetry is a journalism of the soul. You're just watching what is happening, sometimes even if you don't know how to describe it, and your poetry is the effort to describe it. And I realized that when I had a pain or a sorrow that we carry, it's because we can actually, if we give ourselves permission, describe the thing that we're looking for in, in great detail, not because we're experts on it, but because our hearts are experts on it. Our hearts know by the pain of what we're not finding, what we're longing for, the shape of the thing that would fill it. And I realized that this, our fail, my failure to love myself correctly and steward myself correctly, our collective failure to do that for each other and ourselves, and this experience that I was encountering on every front, political, corporate work-wise, in education, in families, in relationships, the actual factor that's missing is this idea, this essence, this essence of leadership and what it means to be a leader. When you're very critical and honest with yourself about that, then you suddenly become an authority on being able to speak truth to what leadership looks like mm -hmm. and what you're watching and what the delta is between what you're watching and what, what it ought to be, which is really the heart of philosophy, really, you're suggesting that simple idea that we spoke about a second ago, they might not be right or only ways, but they have to be better and worse ways. And no one else is coming. And I might as well be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And there's a lot of ways to unpack that and to define that. I realize that all of the work that I do with people, the counseling, the coaching, the, the teaching, it actually is leadership. I'm teaching them the art and the skills and the truth and the philosophy of leadership. And I'm teaching them how to practice that in their various containers and their various contexts. There's a lot of overlap in all areas of life when you look at it through the paradigm of leadership. Suddenly, there's a universality between all experiences, whether it's corporate, military, academic. And I like that. And it's a, a great place for me to operate in and from. How hard do you think it's been to change 
Because normally when people are going through hardships, and including myself, I have to ask myself, what perceptions am I believing in that are not allowing me to change? Because sometimes we think we want to change, but we don't want to let go of our beliefs and our perceptions. Yeah, I say yeah, perceptions yeah. more because beliefs, you know, it is basically the same thing. But a perception to me, if you don't let go of the perception, it's really hard to move on. Well, why though? Because if, if, if none of us arrive at our mistrusts dishonestly or our flaws dishonestly, why is it that we struggle to let go of perceptions? It's because our perceptions, we know that we we earn them in the field, basically. We mm -hmm. Again, we know intuitively we didn't arrive at our perceptions dishonestly. It was formed through something. And it's our knowing the room that we're trying to walk through without stubbing our toe on the foot of the, the table or hitting our shins on the coffee table. We want to know that we are reading the world accurately and that we are able to predict what's going to happen. And we think directly or indirectly that our perceptions are part of our earned accurate worldview. Why would we, why would we relinquish them? Why would we? And so it becomes a very hard project until you can find a replacement of a better perception or a better perspective, why would you give the ground on one that you already have? And leadership actually is this willingness to be vulnerable to the state of paradox and uncertainty so that you can be most intimate, most intimate with life. You know, there's a Zen koan, which goes, not knowing is most intimate with life. And the way I describe it is if you have a, if you have a pillowcase or a sack, mm -hmm filled with trinkets and magic objects, and you were trying to rummage in the dark and bring the prize that you're looking for, the answer. By definition, you don't know what the answer is. You don't know what it ought to look like. You don't know what the shape of it. And if we reach for an answer, the way we reach for an object in the sack that we don't know what we ought to be pulling out, we're shaping our hands already, assuming we know what this thing is that we're going to pull out. And when the hand of our mind reaches forward for an answer or for an experience or for understanding, already shaped as if it knows what it's going to grasp, it will not grasp the thing that it's actually trying to make contact with. And what that koan means is not knowing is most intimate, is to rest with the palm open and allow something to land there. If you really want to be most intimate with the unfolding moment, with life, with the answer that is eluding you, you best unclench the fist of your mind and let go or be prepared to let go of any of your ideas, any of your certainties, because how else is the actual truth to arrive if all the spaces are already filled with what you believe you already know? And But it, that means to walk on the edge of uncertainty all the time. And that discomfort that comes from that is something that you need to own. You can't be exporting that onto other people. And when moments of trial come, like that poem that you read, Not Today, you have to choose to tread water, to aim for the, the shore, to work out this horrifying relentlessness or endlessness or lack of answers in every direction and not export that onto, onto someone else. This has been really, really interesting. What would you like to say to the audience in our closing? <sighs> the greatest gift you can give yourself is finding ways to open the door to, first of all, the possibility 
that paranoia exists that the world is out to do you great service, not great harm, that our lives are happening for us, not to us. And there is an invitation always open or opening in so many moments all the time to a deeper, a deeper conversation, the invitation to drink from a deeper well of exchange, of connection, of experience. And we're all trying to get to the end of a day, the end of a relationship, the end of a work day, the end of a career, the, the end of a human life in a state of absolutely minimal regret. And the only way you can do that is through curiosity and self-permission, curiosity and self-permission. And we have to be prepared to let so much go and to walk through the world vulnerable and ear open always to the conversation. Notice the way the looming parent of our expected self is leaning over the child of our new experience all the time, kind of crowding out the plate and leaning over the moment. I would say keep an ear out for the the deeper conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. And how can people reach you? Easiest way is to go to my website. Um, and from there, there's links to my Substack, to my podcast, to my YouTube channel with some of my work. The URL is, they both resolve to the same place. So it's my name, RoccoJarman.com, R-O-C-C-O-J-A-R-M-A-N.com or my brand, eyeswideopenlife.org, eyeswideopenlife.org. And they both land at exactly the same place. Perfect. And I will put all these links on the bottom for anyone to contact you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for this lovely conversation. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, and many other podcast platforms. Please visit us and subscribe to our newsletter at PoeticResurrection.com for the latest information and updates.